Amen. All right, well, we're there <clears throat> in 1 Corinthians chapter number 1. Last Wednesday, we started a brand new study in the book of 1 Corinthians. And if you remember, we made it through the first 17 uh, verses there in chapter number 1. So tonight, we're going to just pick up right where we left off. And on Wednesday nights or in the evening services when we study the Bible, we just go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and try to pick up what we can learn along the way. And uh, I, did, I told you last time uh, we met that I, I thought we were going to make it into chapter 2, but as I'm studying out just the rest of this chapter, I think we're going to spend tonight finishing up chapter 1, and the next week we're going to get right into chapter 2. And uh, it's the, the, the Bible is good, you know, you don't want to rush through it and miss things. Uh, so we're going to pick up right there in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Look down at verse number 17. 1 Corinthians 1.17, the Bible says this, For Christ sent me not to baptize. Now, we actually talked about that last week, uh, so I'm not going to deal with the subject of baptism. Uh, but notice what he says, but to preach the gospel. Now, he says that Christ sent him to preach the gospel. But then he says this, Not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. There's a theme at the end of this chapter which has to do with foolishness and weakness. And he begins by talking about the fact that the foolishness and the weakness of preaching the gospel or preaching salvation. And he says here that God sent him, Christ sent him to preach the gospel, but he said, but not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. That word less means unless, and, and you know, you got to catch this, especially those of you that are soul winners. He says, if I preach the gospel with wisdom of words. Now, when he's talking about wisdom, he's talking about worldly wisdom. We're going to see that here in the passage. But he says that we can actually make the preaching of the cross of non-effect. And here's what you need to understand. And if you want to write down some statements, or maybe here's a statement for you. When we attempt to preach the gospel with the world's wisdom, the words of the wisdom of this world, we make the cross of non-effect. You say, well, why? Why is that? Well, you know, we're, we're going to get into that into, uh, here in a moment. But before we go there, let me say this. Something we can learn from this passage is that when it comes to preaching the gospel, preaching the Bible, whenever we are communicating the word of God, the goal is not to impress people. The goal is to have clarity. The goal is not that people would come to a church like Verity Baptist Church and they would leave and say, wow, what an amazing sermon. Wow, what an intellectual preacher. Wow, I was so dazzled and impressed with all the big words. And he went back to the Greek and he said this and he said that. I didn't understand anything he said, but wow, I was really impressed. That's not the goal today. But you know, today you've got a lot of churches where people want to get up, pastors want to get up, and they just want to impress people. But see, Paul said that the point, the goal, was to communicate with clarity. Keep your place there in 1 Corinthians 1. Go, go just a few pages back to, or, or over, excuse me, to chapter 14, 1 Corinthians 14. Notice what he says in 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 7. In 1 Corinthians 14, he kind of talks about this idea. You know, the goal, especially you guys that you know, are learning to preach and you want to preach, your goal should always be that people leave and they know exactly what you are trying to say. Now, they may not like it, but they should know. They shouldn't walk away and think, I wonder what he was trying to get at. I wonder what he was trying to say. I wonder what he was trying to communicate. First Corinthians 14, look at verse 7. First Corinthians 14, 7. And even things without life. Now, he's going to give us an example. He says, giving sound, whether pipe or harp, except they give, notice, except they give a distinction in the sound, how shall it be known what is piped or harped? 
For if the trumpet, notice what he says, for if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself to the battle? So likewise ye, except ye utter by the tongue, notice, words easy to be understood, how shall it be known what is spoken, for ye shall speak into the air. I remember when I was in the Air Force, we had the, the trumpet would sound at certain times during the day, and different sounds that it made meant different things, you know, and you would hear for that, and you know, when, when it's time to go to battle, it makes a certain sound. And here's what he's saying is, if you've got a trumpet, and the person that's playing it is not confident, or doesn't know, you know, the notes are supposed to play, instead of, you know, doo, 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 there, it's more like a, doo, 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 you know, people, they're not know, like, uh, is it Reveille? Is it, is it, you know, the anthem playing? Is it time for battle? Here's what he's saying. He's saying, look, the trumpet, when you're going to war, has to make a certain sound so the soldiers know, hey, it's time to go get our weapons. It's time to go into battle. And he says, you likewise, he says, us as Christians in the same way, we must utter by the tongue words easy to be understood. So you say, what's, what's the goal of preaching? Whether it's the gospel and a soul winning, you know, door-to-door situation, or as a preacher of the Word of God behind the pulpit to God's people, what's the goal? It's always to use words easy to be understood. It's always to make things clear. Go to the book of Habakkuk there. Keep your place in 1 Corinthians. If you start at the end of the Old Testament and you head back, you got Malachi, Zechariah, Haggai, Zephaniah, Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter number 2. Habakkuk chapter number 2. And look at verse number two. I remember I was talking to some guy at one time, and he thought he was an intellectual. And he was like trying, he's telling me this idea that he had for a sermon, and he wanted to like impress people with his knowledge, you know, of science. And he was talking about how like you could use this cell as, as his illustration. He had this whole thing, you know, where, the, and I don't know what he, I don't even, I didn't understand what he was saying. They, he was not using words easy to be understood. And but, you know, he's talking about the cell and this, this aspect of the cell and that aspect. And, it could, and, I was, and I just walked away thinking to myself, like, your goal, if you preach that, your goal is for people to walk away and say, wow, that guy's smart. But that's a failure when it comes to preaching the Word of God. Because, look, the Word of God, we don't preach the Word of God so that you can be impressed with me. We preach the Word of God so that your lives can be changed, so that you can understand what the Bible says, so that it can be clear to you. Notice Habakkuk chapter 2. Notice what God says to one of his prophets in Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 2. The Bible says, And the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision. So in this case, he was writing what God had told him. He said, Write the vision. And then he said this, And, and this should be our goal, Make it plain upon tables that he may run that readeth it. He said, look, your goal is to make the message plain. Your goal is to use words easy to be understood. When we get up to preach, we're not trying to impress people. We're not trying to show off our brains and show off how smart we are. We, look, we want to put it down on the bottom shelf where even a theologian can understand it, all right? We want to just be clear. We don't want people to walk out and say, well, I wonder what he was saying. And look, today, you say, why is it that people, go back to First Corinthians, why is it that preachers, you know, preach like this? Because my wife and I, when we first got married, we spent the first six months of our, of our marriage at, at this church. And this church was like this. I mean, it was like the grand old opera, you know, it was like a very classy church. And the pastor would get up and say, turn with me to the... 16th verse of the third chapter of the gospel according to John. 
And I'm like, you mean John 3, 16? You know, and it's like, and that's how he talked, you know, and he, and he used all these big words. You say, but why do people do that? I'll tell you exactly why you do it. Because they want to be able to preach things that people don't understand. Because, you know, they don't want to get up and just say, you know, hey, fornication is sin. Drunkenness is sin. So, you know, sodomy is sin. They don't want to get up and just say those things. They want to try to say it, but in a way where people are kind of like, was he, what? I wonder what he was trying to get at. I wonder what he was trying to say. I don't know. I didn't really understand that. Look, our goal is always to be clear. Our goal is always to make things plain. So when we attempt to preach the gospel with the wisdom of words, we make the cross of Christ of non-effect. You say, well, why? Why do we make the cross of, uh, the cross of Christ of non-effect? Go back to 1 Corinthians 1, look at verse 18. Notice what he says. For, he says, because the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. He's saying, look, when the people that are going to die and go to hell, the people that are not saved, they don't understand the preaching of the cross, and it's foolishness to them anyway. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, you make the preaching of the cross of non-effect because the preaching of the cross is foolishness to them. There is no point to attempt to make something they see as foolish sound intellectual. Do you understand what I'm saying? He's saying, look, there's no point of trying to dress it up. There's no point of trying to make it sound. There's no point of trying to make it, you know, so it's acceptable for our society. Look, people are either going to accept it or they're not. They're either going to believe it or they're not. They're either going to get saved or they're not. So there's no point of trying to, you know, trick them into it. Hey, he says, just preach the gospel. Just make it plain. Just use words that are easy to be understood. Because he says it's foolishness to those that are perishing anyway. Notice what he says at the end of verse 18. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. Now I want to just highlight something for you here in verse 18. Do you notice how it says, but unto us which are saved? But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. Now at Verity Baptist Church, we are a King James Bible-believing church. All right. What we mean by that is that we believe the King James Bible is perfect. Now notice how that was clear. You know, because today the average IFB is going to get up and say like, well, you know, there's the, the Word of God is preserved. And, but, they, you know, the, most guys aren't even going to tell you, well, what, what, what Word of God? You know, but in, in the, the, the Texas Receptus, people don't understand that. Look, it's a, it's a King James Bible I've got in my hand. It's inspired. It's preserved. It's the Word of God. Now, here's the thing. Our King James Bible says, but unto us, notice these words, which are saved. You see that? Which are saved. The modern Bible versions today, the modern Bible perversions today, will change that verse. And it will change it to say this. Let me read for you out of the NIV. This is the most, probably the most widely used um, you know, version today. Uh, it, it says this in verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but unto us who are being saved. But unto us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written. Now, let me ask you a question. Is there a difference between unto us which are saved and unto us which are being saved? You say, well, that's the NIV. Okay, how about the New American Standard Version? For the word of, for the, word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written. And they, they go on. How about the ESV? For the, word of, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved. It's, it's funny how they all basically say the same thing. 
How about the New King James? Because people try to say, like, well, the New King James is like the old one, and they just remove the these and the thous. Okay, well, the New King James says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God for it is written. Now, look, the Bible says, but unto us which are saved. The perversions say, but unto us which are being saved. You say, well, why would they make that change? Because they want to attack salvation. They want to attack the gospel. Look, the Bible says, verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word, is what Jesus said, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and is passed from death unto life. It doesn't say you're being passed. Look, Jesus said he must be born again. How long does that birth last? Look, it's a moment. When I was born, it took a moment. I was born, and then I spent the rest of my life living my life. Well, you know what? The Christian life, you get born again, and then you spend the rest of your life living the Christian life. But we're not being saved. It's done. When you believe, you are saved. When you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, thou shalt be saved. So that's something that you can highlight there. You know, Maybe as you talk to people about this thing about the King James Bible, and you want to explain it, that's a great uh, verse to go and show people. Because people will act like this, like, they'll say, like, well, there's changes, but it doesn't make a difference. Well, look, it makes a difference there. That affects doctrine. That affects the gospel. That affects the word of God. Go, go, look at 1 Corinthians 1, look at verse 19. For it is written. Now, when Paul says these words, for it is written, what he's going to do is he's going to quote uh, from the Old Testament. And he says, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Now, let's see where this quote is. And for those of you taking notes, if you want to write next to 1 Corinthians 1.19, write this reference, Isaiah 29.14. Isaiah 29.14. Just so you can have that cross-reference so you know what he's quoting back to. And it's, it's a loose quote. It's not an exact quote. But he says it is written because he's basically explaining what's written in Isaiah 29, 14. Let's go there real quickly. Isaiah 29, 14. If you open up your Bible, you're towards the end of the Old Testament. You've got those major books of the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. Isaiah 29, look at verse 14, and let's see uh, the quote there. Isaiah 29, 14 says this. Therefore, behold, therefore, behold, I will proceed to do a marvelous work among this people, even a marvelous work, and they wonder, for the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hid. That's what Paul is referring to in 1 Corinthians 1.19 when he says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Now you say, well, what does he mean by that? Here's what he's saying, and we're going to get back to that thought here in a minute. But again, you got to understand, in this passage, he talks about two different types of wisdom. There's the wisdom of the world, and then there's the wisdom of God. There's the way that the world sees things. There's also the strength or the power of the world, and there's the strength and power of God. So why do we not use the words of the world to try to preach the gospel? Because the preaching of the cross is foolishness to them. So there's no point in attempting to make something they see as foolish you know, sound smart or intellectual by their standards. But here's what you need to understand. It is the world's wisdom that drew them away from God to begin with. 
See, it is their intellect and their pride and vainglory that drew them away from God to begin with. So why would we use that wisdom to attempt to draw them back to God? Look at 1 Corinthians 1, look at verse 20. Notice what he says. He says, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? That's the guy that wants to debate everything and, you know, uh, talk about everything. And, uh, well, I don't know, always playing the devil's advocate. He says, well, where are they? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? He said, didn't God show you that the wisdom of this world is foolish? Look at verse 21. For after that in the wisdom of God, notice what the Bible says, the world by wisdom knew not God. See, it is their wisdom, the world's wisdom, that drew them away from God. He says, for after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. Notice what it says. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Now, please understand what he's saying. God is not calling the preaching of the word of God foolishness, okay? He's talking about what the world considers foolishness. Because remember, in verse 18, it says that they consider the preaching of the cross foolishness. And then he says, okay, well, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. But see, the world by wisdom knew not God. You say, what is he talking about? Well, go go back to Romans chapter number 1. You're there in 1 Corinthians. Just one book back, Romans chapter 1. It is the world's wisdom that drew them away from God to begin with. Romans 1 and verse 21, notice what the Bible says. Romans 1.21, Romans 1.21 says this, because that, when they knew God, when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, notice what the Bible says, but became vain. And look, these intellectual, these guys, they think they're so smart, they want to, you know, use these big words, you know, all they are is vain but became vain in their imagination, and their foolish heart was darkened. Notice verse 22. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Why? Because the wisdom of the world draws people. uh, It it is their wisdom that drew. See, they went to school, and they learned about evolution. They went to school, and they got their education. They got their wisdom. Now they're intellectuals. Now they're sophisticated. You know, but didn't God say, hey, that it was foolish? Their wisdom was foolish? You say, well, why would God say that their wisdom is foolish? Here's why God says that their wisdom is foolish. Because the most educated people in this world are going to tell you that you came from a monkey. See, the, the smarter you get by the world standards, the more foolish you are. Because, the, you know, the, the, the smart, well-educated, you know, they've got all of the degrees, they've got all the titles, they've got all the accolades. They're going to sit there and literally, I mean, what, you know, go on YouTube and look up just the most famous atheists. I can't even think of their names now. Some of you guys know their names. You know, the most famous atheists. And you know what you're going to hear them say? You're going to hear them say, there may be aliens on another planet. They'll, they'll say, there's no way that God exists, but maybe aliens, you know, brought life to this earth. That's the most smartest guys they got. You say, why? Because the wisdom of the world is foolishness. And, you know, they look at us and, and we say, hey, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Amen. We say, hey, the heavens declare his glory, the firmament. I mean, we say, look at nature, it declares God. And they're like, oh, that's foolish. That's not smart. And we're like, okay, well, what do you got? Monkeys, man. 
We came from monkeys, and there was a big bang, you know, and, and nothing, you know, everything came from nothing. That's smart. See, there's, there's a problem. And then, and then you've got the Christians that say, well, let's take the world's wisdom and try to use that to preach the gospel. You know, maybe there's theistic evolution. Maybe you can somehow take, and you got preachers today who want to use philosophy, who want to use counseling, who want to get all this, you know, stuff from the world and say, well, maybe we can make it. And, you know, all they're doing, it's like David, they're trying to carry the ark of God on the Philistines' ark. And they're using the tools of the world. And God says, look, it's not foolish. They became vain in their imaginations, professing themselves uh, to be wise. They became fools. And, you know, Brother Stucky brought this up to me uh, uh, as an example about this. But, you know, today you've got these creation ministries, you know, like Ken Ham. And they literally don't understand what this passage is teaching. Because they'll say, like, yeah, we've got to use all, you know, we've got to get to people. And they'll say, we, you know, don't preach the gospel to them. Let's just go to them with a chart, and let's go to them and debate evolution, and let's go to them. And if we can just get them to, you know, understand, let's prove to them that there is a God. And listen to me, I, I'm, I, I think, you know, studying evolution and studying those things as a Christian, you know, you're already saved, you already believe in God, and you just look into it to see the glory of God. I think that's great. We did an evolution series here not too long ago. But if you remember, I stood up and said, hey, we're not going to try to prove God to you. Amen. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You've got to come to him in faith, and we're not going to prove God to you. But here's the thing. You know, it's fine to study those things. It's fine. But at the end of the day, you need to just preach the gospel to people. And, you know, when I, when I met my wife, we were, I was uh, 17 years old, and she was 17 years old, and we were working at Subway. We were teenagers. You know, when I met my wife, she was an atheist. She didn't believe in God because she's, she's smarter than I am, right? So she graduated a year early, and she was already in community college, and she'd taken uh, the, the anthropology class, you know, the human anthropology or man anthropology class, and they convinced her, you know, to be an atheist. And, you know, I was 17 years old, and I was trying to get her saved, and I spent weeks and weeks and months and months, you know, and I'm looking up every, you know, Kent Hovind video. I'm, I'm looking up every article. I'm using all this stuff, you know. I'm trying to show her. I'm telling her about the geologic column, and I'm telling her about the dinosaurs. I'm telling her about the fact that there's, you know, three inches of dust on the moon or whatever. I don't even know if that's true. I'm just telling her whatever I can. You know, I'm telling her all these things, and it was just, what was it? It was just a big debate. It, you know, and it, and it was a, a nice debate, you know, but it was just, you know, going back and forth or whatever. But, you know, uh, event, one, one day I, I remember asking my pastor, because I'm like, man, I'm trying to get this girl saved. And, and this is the advice he get to me. He said, you know what, just forget all that stuff and just give her the gospel, just preach the gospel. Amen. And I just decided, like, that's just what I'm going to do. And I just started just giving her the gospel, just giving her verses. You know, and obviously in a work setting it's different. It's not like every day I showed up to work and I'm like, on our break, you know, do you know for sure if you died today? But, you know, I would talk to her about it and give her verses and give her things to think about. You know, eventually she got saved. But why? Because it is the power of God. The word of God is the power of God unto salvation. So, you know, don't worry. You know, I'm not against people that are saved, learning about things and, and, and studying it. And we've done studies on that. and All that is very interesting. But don't think you're going to go out and get people saved using the wisdom of this world. No, you've got to use the word of God. It is the word of God that has power, not my explanation, not your explanation, not my illustration, not your illustration. It's the word of God. That's what you got to use. And you say, well, why? I don't, I don't understand. You know, why can't 
They understand it. Why can't they get it? Why is there such a divide between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God? Well, look at verse 22. 1 Corinthians 1, 22. Notice what he says. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. And, you know, today you will actually have people tell you that these are good things. You know, the Jews require a sign, so we got to get, get, let's get them a sign. You know, that, that red moon is going to give us, be a sign for them. You know, and they'll say the Greeks seek after wisdom. But here's the question. Remember, and we're going to get into this in chapter 2 next week. But when we study the word of God, okay, we do not use the world's wisdom. Comparing spiritual things with spiritual. So the question is, because today people say like, the Jews require a sign and they'll act like that's good. We should pray that God gives them a sign. Let's get a sign for them. Let's get a sign, you know, or whatever. But here's the question. Well, what, what does the Bible say about that? Is that a good thing? Is it a good thing that the Jews require a sign? Well, let me ask you this. Is it a good thing that the Greeks seek after wisdom? I mean, we're in verse 22, and as we've been going just verse by verse through this passage, you think it's a good thing? You know, you think Paul's going to turn around and say, well, it's foolishness, well, it's stupid, well, you know, they don't understand it, but let's go ahead and just get, you know, Aristotle, and let's just go give him the wisdom and see if we can reach him. So is it a good thing? Well, let's let the Bible answer that. Go to Matthew chapter number 12. Matthew chapter number 12. Matthew 12. Look at verse 38. Matthew chapter 12. First book in the New Testament should be fairly easy to find. Matthew chapter 12. Look at verse 38. Notice what the Bible says. Matthew 12, 38. Then certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered, saying, Master. Now, who were the scribes and the Pharisees? Those are the Jews. And they come to Jesus and they say, Master, we would see a sign from thee. Wasn't that exactly what 1 Corinthians 1.22 says? For the Jews require a sign? They wanted a sign. They said, hey, we would see a sign from you. We would see a sign from thee. Look at verse 39. But he answered and said unto them, Now, is it a good thing or a bad thing that the Jews require a sign? An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. And there shall no sign be given to it. He said, I'm not going to give you a sign. He says, if you want a sign, here's your sign. But the sign of the prophet Jonas, for as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He said, you know what? If you want a sign, the sign is by death, burial, and resurrection. That's all the sign you get. So they say, well, the Jews require a sign. They got their sign. It's called the gospel. But look, with that said, if we're not supposed to, you know, be looking for a sign and trying to get a sign, they've got their sign, then are we supposed to be going and getting the, the wisdom of the Greeks, the wisdom of the world, and trying to reach people with that wisdom? You say, well, okay, well, we don't have wisdom. You don't have wisdom. And, you know, you, I've, I've been attacked. I've been, you know, accused of like, Pastor Mez, you're not smart. You're not intellectual. Well, you know what? Then, then praise the Lord. I think I'm, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. You know, your preaching's not deep enough. You know, here's, here's what people mean by that. Because they want you to get up and say things that, you, they don't, that, you, that, that aren't clear. Usually when you're clear and plain, when you make it plain, when you use words easy to be understood, you know, that's where you get accused of like, oh, you're too shallow. No, you know what? That's, the Bible says that we're supposed to preach in a way that people understand. We're supposed to preach in a way that people can grow. You say, okay, well, 
Well, okay, so you're not gonna give you're not gonna give us the Greek and you're not gonna give us all the intellectual terms. What are you gonna give us? Well, I'm gonna give you the same thing that Paul gave you. First Corinthians 123. Notice what he says. But we, because he just got done telling you why we don't preach using the world's wisdom, why we don't use the world's term, why we don't use the world's philosophy, why do we don't use what the world says? He says, but we preach Christ crucified. He says, but we preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews, a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks, foolishness. Now, before we get into, why, well, why is it a stumbling block to the Jews? And why is it uh, foolishness to the Greeks? I want you to understand, you see that phrase there, Christ crucified. Christ crucified. But we preach Christ crucified. That phrase is the ultimate oxymoron. I mean, there's no more ultimate, there's no bigger oxymoron than these two words side by side. Christ crucified. See, an oxymoron, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to impress you right now with my intellect. Oxymoron is a figure of speech which is seemingly self-contradictory, right? You know, you say, what's an oxymoron? It's when you put two words together that contradict each other, but you're saying they go together. Like here, this is an oxymoron. Jumbo shrimp. You know, it's like, well, is it jumbo or is it shrimp? You know, is it big or is it small? Here's a, when somebody tells you to act naturally, that's an oxymoron. You know, because if you're being natural, you're not acting, all right? Here's an oxymoron. Someone says, oh, they were found missing. Well, how, how are they found missing? You know, they're either found or they're missing. Here's an oxymoron. Liquid gas. Okay, is it liquid or is it gas? Uh, someone says, oh, he's seriously funny. That's an oxymoron. He's either serious or he's funny. So that's what we mean. And you say, well, Christ crucified... How is that an oxymoron? Okay, because the word Christ, the word Christ is not the name of Jesus, okay? It's not like his last name was Christ, right? Mr. Christ, nice to meet you, okay? We, Jesus often referred to as the Lord Jesus Christ. The word Lord or the term Lord is a title, meaning he's the boss, he's in charge. Jesus was his name. His given name, his rightly given name, you know. And then you've got the term Christ. What does the word Christ mean? It means Messiah. And you can find that throughout the Gospels where God, the Bible tells us that the word Christ means Messiah. Well, what does Messiah mean? It means the anointed one. It means the one sent from God, okay? It means the one that's coming to save us from our sins, the one that's coming to deliver us. Another way that the Bible, uh, that the word uh, salvation is used is this word deliverance or to be delivered. It is the one who is coming to deliver us. It is the one that is coming to save us. It is the one that is coming to give us victory. It, see, everything about the word Christ has to do with victory, conquest, power, strength. And then you have the word crucified. Which, what is to be crucified? Crucifixion is the most horrible and humiliating death that someone could go through. I mean, crucifixion, remember Jesus himself, the Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that, that, that he suffered humiliation, you know. And, and, and today, see, we, we use these terms and we talk about the cross and we sing about the cross and, and we should. 
We should sing about the cross, and we should love the cross. And we, ter- you, we use terms like, we preach Christ crucified, and we think that's good. But you need to understand, the people who Paul is writing this letter to in the first century to the Corinthian church, when he says crucifixion, see, you and I, you know, the, the, we, we see crucifixion like you walk by a Catholic church and you see this Jesus, you know, that's not Jesus, on a cross there, and he's got like one little, you know, thing of blood coming down. Okay, these people understood what crucifixion was. This was a horrible death. This was a terrible death. It was humiliating. You did not, look, they did not put you to death on a cross because they wanted to kill you. They put you to death on a cross because they wanted to make an example of you. It would have been kind for them to just hang you. It would have been kind of them to just to stone you. Crucifixion. It'd be, it'd be like today if, you, if I said, hey, we preach Christ in the electric chair. You know, you think like, whoa, that's not how I want to die. You know, and there's a connotation there. It's horrible. It's humiliating. And you say, well, why are you bringing that up? Because you need to understand that that's the point of verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified. We preach, hey, your Messiah, hey, your deliverer, hey, your savior, hey, the anointed one died, crucified. And then he says this, unto the Jews, a stumbling block. Because the Jew would say, well, why would our deliverer be killed? Why would, why would the one that's supposed to come and deliver us and give us victory and, and take the Roman Empire off of us, and isn't that what they thought he was going to do? Why, why would he be put to death? And you say, the message of the cross is a stumbling block to the Jew. Why? Because it's not what they were expecting. He says, but we preach Christ crucified unto the Jew, a stumbling block. But then he says this, and unto the Greeks, foolishness. Say, why, why would it be foolish? Because why would a person, here's what the Greeks would think. Well, why would a person who supposedly is coming to save me, he can't even save himself? That's what they would say. He, he's supposed to deliver me. He couldn't deliver himself. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews, a stumbling block. And unto the Greeks, foolishness, notice verse 24, but unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, anyone who chooses, notice, it's not foolishness, it's not a stumbling block, it's not weakness, Christ the power, the word power, it's talking about the strength there, he said it's not weakness, it's power of God, and of the, notice, it's not foolishness, but the wisdom of God. So what what is it that Paul's trying to explain? Here's what he's trying to say. They look at, the world looks at, and in chapter 2, we're going to talk about why they see it that way. Because they're, they're, they're discerned. They can't understand spiritual things. But he says, they look at our message, and they look at it as foolish. And they'll say, well, I don't get it. I don't understand. Look, and isn't that true today? You go out and you tell somebody, hey, you can be saved, and you don't have to do anything. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. It's a gift. Now, look, isn't that just clear? I mean, isn't that plain? Isn't that easy to understand? God has a gift he wants to give you. It's free. It's a gift. You don't have to earn it. It's been paid for. Christ crucified, paid for it. And, you know, people walk away from that, and they're like, I don't know. I think I still got to, you know, get baptized. I don't know. You know, I think I still got to go to the confessional booth. I, I think I still have to do the sacraments. And you say, well, why don't they get it? Why don't they accept it? Why don't they understand it? Here's why they don't get it. Because it's not what they were expecting. 
Because what they were expecting was, I'll save myself. I'll earn my way. I'll do, I'll do it. It'll be me and Jesus. It'll be me, and, and, and we'll get it done. I will repent of my sins. I will live a good life. But look, he says it's Christ crucified. It's Christ. And they did not expect that. It's what they did not expect. That God, you say, what did they not expect? And here's the best part. Look at verse 25. Because the foolishness of God. Now, God is not foolish. You got to understand the context. What, what they would consider foolishness. Because the foolishness of God. Here's what they're saying. God at his most foolish, by man's standards. God at his most foolish, by man's standards. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. And then he says this, and the weakness of God. Now, God is not weak, but it's by their standard. He said, God, the weakness of God, God at his weakest, by man's standards, notice, is stronger than men. See, when we say we preach Christ crucified, what we're talking about is the fact that God Almighty God, the creator of the universe, he said unto me, he's given all power. He said all, he had all power. And that God chose to humble himself and to take the death of the cross. And the Greeks would look at that and say, eh, that's foolish. I think I'm going to stick with Hercules. I think I'm going to stick with Zeus. I think I'm going to... And, and the Jews would say, ah, that's foolish. That's a stumbling block. That's not what I was expecting. That's not what I wanted. I wanted him to come and just, you know, take away our enemies and make us prosperous. And this whole Messiah dying, I don't know about that. Notice for verse 25, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So notice at the beginning of this passage, he talks about this idea about the foolishness and the weakness of the preaching of salvation. The fact that when we preach the gospel, it doesn't make sense to the world. So we shouldn't be trying to bring in the wisdom of the world and trying to make it sound like the world. And trying to make, and look, that's what churches today are trying to do. They're, they bring in the world's music because they're like, well, if we can make it, you know, uh, like what people like and be like people like. But listen to me, what you win them with is what you'll win them to. Say, why, why, why do you have the old hymns? Why do you have the Bible preaching? You know, I came to Bible, to a Bible study. I've had some people say, I came to Bible study on Wednesday night. And they're like, this is just a church service. And I'm like, what do you mean? And they're like, well, I was expecting we were going to sit around in a circle. And then I was going to talk about, you know, uh, what I, well, mine says, you know, uh, to those that are being saved. You know, and, and, and then this guy says, you know, to those that are saved, I thought that's what we were going to do. But you say, well, well, you, you know, why won't we do that? Why do we do what's foolish to people? Why do we go soul winning? No, the churches go soul winning, you know, except the Jehovah's Witnesses, which is not soul winning. You know, but why do you go knock on doors? Because, you know, because God said to do it. That's why. Because the word of God says to do it. That's why. You say, well, you know, he says the, the world looks at the preaching of salvation and he says it's foolish. And you say, well, Pastor Jimenez, why is Paul bringing all this up? Why is Paul saying this? Because you remember last week when we spent the first 17 verses studying chapter 1, he was talking about the fact that there was contentions and divisions 
and the church, right? I am of Paul, I'm of Apollos, and the real spiritual, you know, I'm of Cephas, and the real spiritual ones, I'm of Christ. You know, and they were fighting amongst themselves. He said, it's reported unto me that there's divisions among you, there's contentions among you, you're fighting. And then he kind of shifts gears and starts talking about how, look, what we preach, the world thinks is foolish. It doesn't make sense to them. It's not what they were expecting. It's a stumbling block. It's foolishness. And what does that have to do with anything? Well, he brings that up to transition to what we're going to look at right now, which is he talks about the foolishness and weakness of the preaching of salvation because he's really trying to get to the foolishness and weakness of the people who are saved. See, not only is the preaching of salvation foolish and weak, but the people that are saved are foolish and weak. You say, what are you talking about? Well, look at 1 Corinthians 1. Look at verse 26. For you see your calling... For you see your calling, brethren. See, he, he spent the last few verses saying, hey, I'm trying to explain to you that the preaching of the cross is foolishness and weakness if you, if, if, by the world standard, of course. And if you want uh, proof of that, just, just look at the fact that we preach Christ crucified. And that's an oxymoron. That doesn't make sense. But then he would say, you want more proof? He says, you want more proof of the foolishness and weakness of the gospel? He says, look in a mirror. Look at yourselves. He said, for you see your calling, brethren. How that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. Now, it's good that he, he says not many. He doesn't say not any, right? So, look, because anybody can be saved, right? But, look, it's, even, you know, Jesus said that it would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, for you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, Again, it's not that there's not wise men. This church is filled with wise men. But he says not many wise men after the flesh. Not many mighty after the flesh. That's the idea. Not many noble after the flesh are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught the things that are. So see, when people say like, oh, you're not very smart, you're not very strong, you're not very talented, and people will say to you, you know, you'll get saved, and you start growing in the Lord, and what does your family say to you? They say, what, are you in a cult? I mean, nobody else. Your, your church is the only one that teaches that. Why are you homeschooling your church? Nobody else, said, no other church I've ever gone to says that, you know, you shouldn't have your kids in the public school system, the devil's school system. No, nobody else said, I've been, you know, your family said, I've gone to church all my life. They never told me anything about how I should dress or the things I watch on TV, you know. They, and they'll say, what, what is that? You know, you're not smart. You're not getting it. You're not understanding it. But listen to me. When they tell you you're not smart, when they tell you you're not weak, you're, you're not strong, they tell you you're weak, They're, they'll tell you you don't understand. They'll tell you you need somebody that, that's educated, somebody that knows something more than you. When they tell you that, just realize you are right at the place where God Amen. can use you. Because he says he didn't choose. He says, for you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish. He said, are we fool, foolish? No, no, the foolish things of the world. Where the world would say, you're foolish. He says, I chose them to confound the wise. 
And God has chosen the weak things. You say, are we weak? Well, look, I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. But weak by the world standards, the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised have got chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to not things that are. You say, well, again, why, why is Paul bringing this up? What's the whole point of this? Well, remember, again, remember, who's he talking to? Well, let's look at it just real quickly. Go, go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, look at verse 12. What's the problem? What's the issue? It's contention. It's division. 1 Corinthians 1, 12. Now, this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I have Apollos, and I have Cephas, and I have Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were ye baptized in the name of Paul? You say, well, okay, well, I get that there's a vision there, but what does that have to do with the fact that God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise? What does that have to do with the fact that God has chosen the weak things of this world to confound the things which are mighty? What does that have to do with anything? Okay, well, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We saw it last week, but let's look at the connection just real quickly. We're almost done. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. 1 Corinthians 4, 6. And these things, brethren... Have, I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sakes, that ye might learn in us. That ye might learn in us. See, you say, well, what's the problem with I'm of Paul and I'm of Apollos and I'm of Cephas and I'm of Christ? What's the problem with that? That ye might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written, that no one of you be puffed up for one against another. See, it wasn't really about I'm in Paul's camp because Paul started the church at Corinth and I'm with Paul. And then and other people say, well, I'm with Peter because, you know, Peter was the leader of the disciples and Peter was the one that Jesus gave the, the keys of heaven and earth. So that's who I'm going to follow. And, and, and others say, well, Apollos, you know, no one preaches better than Apollos. He's eloquent. He can say, See, it wasn't really about who they were following. It was all about them and how my group is better than your group. And the guy I like is better than the guy you like. And it was the fact that they were puffed up for one against another. That they were puffed up. See, here, you say, what's the problem? Here's what starts happening with Christians after they get saved and start getting sin out of their life and start getting you know, things right in their life. They come to church and they're all humble. My marriage is falling apart. My children don't like me. My dog died. You know, and, and, and it's all humble, and you get them saved, you get them baptized, you help them get a job, you start, you know, their, their marriage starts getting better, and their, their children start acting right, and, and all of a sudden, now all of a sudden, I'm not that bad. I got it all put together. And when the new person walks in, and their marriage is falling apart, and their children are running away from home, and they, you know, don't have a job, and they, you know, all of a sudden, well, I'm better than they are. And we start getting puffed up one against the other. And what Paul is trying to remind us is this. Hey, if you are a believer, you believed in something the world considers foolish, and God called you because you were foolish, because you were weak, because you couldn't do it on your own, because you needed him to save you, because you needed him to save you. And here's what he's trying to say. Paul's trying to help these people and understand. He's trying to say this. Go back to 1 Corinthians 1, 29. He's trying to tell them, hey, don't get filled with pride remember remember that if you're saved it's because God has chosen the foolish things of this world it's because God has chosen the weak things of this world 
is because God has chosen the base things of this world and the things which are despised. And listen to me, Christians who start thinking, I'm better than everyone, don't last long in the Christian life. They quit, they get out of church, they get backslidden, they cause problems. Why? Because they forget the fact that if I've been chosen, if I've been called, and we understand that God has called everyone. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And anybody who wants to believe on Christ can be saved. But if God allows me to be saved, it's because I was in need of him. You say, well, what's the point? Well, look at verse 29. Notice what he says. So what's the point of all of this? Here's what he says. Verse 29. That no flesh should glory in his presence. What does the word glory mean? Well, you don't have to go there, but in Romans 3, 23, the Bible says this, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. In Romans 4, 2, the Bible says this, for if Abraham were justified by works, he's not saying that Abraham is justified by works. He says if, he says if, hypothetically, if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. You say, well, not, why not before God? Because we all come short of the glory of God. See, what does it mean to glory? It means to boast. It means to brag. That's what glory, and, and the whole point of this idea that Paul is bringing to the church of Corinth, he's ending it with this thought in verse 29. He says that no flesh should glory, that no flesh should boast, that no flesh would get puffed up and start thinking, well, I'm better than they are, and I'm look how well I am. I'm in Paul's church, and they're in Peter's church, or I'm in Cephas camp, or I'm in Apollo. He says, hey, before you get there, just remember, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Verse 30, but of him, but of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Verse 31, don't miss it, don't miss it. That according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. All the boasting and bragging should always be done in the Lord. See, it's not, I'm so great, is look what God has done for me. It's not, man, man, look, look what I've done. I mean, look at where I'm in life. No, no, it's like by the grace of God. It is God. Every good gift cometh from above. Everything I have. And he's just reminding us, he's reminding us, hey, before we start getting too puffed up, before we start getting a little too big for our britches, just remember that the world thinks that what you believe is foolish, and God chose you, or you were able to be chosen, you were able to be saved because you came to the place where you understood, I can't do this. He says, don't ever forget that. Don't ever forget that. Don't ever forget that no flesh should glory in his presence. That according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Let's bow our heads and I will prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for a Bible that we can study. Lord, I understand that people could look at a sermon like this and say, well, that wasn't very impressive. Well, that wasn't very deep. Well, that wasn't very intellectual. I'm just going verse by verse, studying the Bible. Lord, help us always to glory in the Lord. Help us to never get to the place where we start thinking, we're pretty big stuff. We're pretty hot stuff. Help us always to remember our calling was because we were weak in the flesh, foolish in the flesh. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God, for sending your son to die a humiliating death on our behalf. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.